recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 17th, 2014. The new mine comp site is moving right along. It will be turned on soon. I hope people find it worth the effort. There's a new, um, we had to procure a new server. We had problems, so many problems with the, the TeamSpeak chat with Clifton Emmerheiser's site the last few weeks. And I found that the hosting service that I was using for that server was providing a 10 megabit per second uplink when we were paying for 100 megabits per second. I don't know how long that's going on, but I'm going to um, plan on dropping them and moving the websites and other services that I have on those servers. That's already in the works. The um, Christian Europe program, Yahweh willing, will commence on Sunday, I believe, with Sven Longshanks this Sunday. I'm not sure what time it's going to be, Eastern Standard Time, because I heard that the clocks in Britain have changed and I have to talk with Sven and, and get a time on that. We want to keep the time consistent on the European side. So it might change. It was at 2 p.m. Eastern time, the last program. The clocks over there have changed, so it might change to 3 p.m. or 1 p.m. or whichever direction I'm supposed to um, move it in. I don't know yet. I'm a clock dummy, I guess. Tonight we will have a presentation of the Epistles of Paul, 1 Corinthians Part 3, and this program will be subtitled, The Mystery of Yahweh, which we will get to shortly. 1 Corinthians Chapter 1 ends as Paul compares worldly wisdom, the wisdom of men, which is doomed to fail, with the wisdom of God, which is far better than that of man. Paul explains that although the gospel of God is folly to man, the wisdom of man shall be destroyed and has already been made to look foolish in the account of the Christ. Men simply, most men simply don't know that yet. What we think we know about the world, the creation, the universe around us, the science we call physics, what we think we know isn't what there is, obviously. Or otherwise, the word of God would be nothing to us. In many respects, the humanist philosophies of the ancient world were indeed comparable to those of modern times. And the religious authorities of the ancient world have become just as humanistic as we see the religious authorities are today. So while the world thinks that Christians are fools, in reality, and I'm talking about real Christians, not these phony Judaized Christians, in reality, Christians should see that those who are worldly are the true fools. As David wrote in two of his Psalms, 14 and 53, the fool said in his heart, 
that there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that does good. The first ministry of Paul of Tarsus in Corinth lasted over 18 months, which we see in Acts chapter 18, verse 11, until the Judeans attempted to persecute him by charging him before the Roman proconsul Gallio. After the persecution had failed, Paul continued in Corinth for an additional but indeterminate period, which Luke describes only as many days in Acts 18, verse 18. The end of Paul's ministry in Corinth having coincided with the term of the proconsul Gallio can therefore be dated to 51 or 52 AD from an inscription discovered at Delphi in Greece, the site of the famous ancient Temple of Apollo, which was first published in 1905 and which is popularly called the Gallio Inscription. The inscription represents part of a letter from the Emperor Claudius concerning Gallio himself, which was written in 52 AD. After departing Corinth, Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and we see that in Acts chapters 19 and 20. And after Ephesus, passing through Macedonia, he once again returned to Greece, where he spent another three months. By Greece, as the text records in Acts chapter 20, verse 2, it can be told from Paul's epistles that Corinth was where he spent at least a part of those three months, probably the greater part. The first epistle to the Corinthians was written from Ephesus. We will see that when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And the second was written as Paul was en route from Macedonia to Corinth for his final visit there. And we can tell that from chapters 1 and 9 and 11 of that epistle to Corinthians. Paul's departure from Ephesus seems to have been imminent when he wrote 1 Corinthians, where he said, I will tarry at Ephesus until the Pentecost. 1 Corinthians 16, 8. If Paul was tried before Gallio in 52 AD, then with the intervening travels and three years in Ephesus, he very likely may have written this epistle in the early part of 56 AD. Therefore, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is recollecting his long ministry there, which had ended approximately four before this letter was written. Now, the, um, as I outlined presenting the book of Acts last year, the chronology of this is borne out, is accurate. Of course, it's not going to be perfectly accurate. We only have partial facts. It's proven to be fairly accurate towards the end of Paul's ministry, when he is imprisoned in um, Judea under Felix and Festus, because we know when they served their terms of office in Judea.
so we could date the end of Paul's ministry from there. Counting backwards, this indeed is 56 A.D., about four years after he had last seen the Corinthians, where um, the Epistle to the Romans was written from the Troad, most likely in 57 A.D., a year before Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, or at least a partial year before. So we will commence with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, understanding that this epistle was written four years after Paul's long stay in Corinth, which was the reason for giving that chronology. And I, having come to you, brethren, came not in accordance with eminence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the mystery of Yahweh, since I had decided not to acknowledge anything among you except Yahshua Christ and that of his crucifixion. That Greek verb, Ido, is literally to know. I believe the King James said, I had decided not to know anything among you, or something quite similar. Liddell and Scott explained that this exact um, phrase, which Paul used, ki adenahi, was used in this sense, to acknowledge anything. Paul had merely explained that the gospel of Christ was his sole focus the entire time that he had spent in Corinth. Rather than the phrase, mystery of God, at the end of verse 1, some codexes and the majority text, so we see it in the King James, have testimony of God. The older codexes and the 3rd century papyrus, P46, all have mystery of God. We would contend that the phrase, mystery of God, is very poorly understood, especially in, in, in Judeo-Christian circles, but also in identity Christian circles. The phrase, mystery of God, has nothing to do with God himself being a mystery. Even as Paul had said in Romans chapter 1, in verses 18 and 19, for the wrath of Yahweh is revealed from heaven upon all profane and unjust men who withhold the truth with injustice because that which is to be known of God is visible among them since God, Yahweh, has made it known to them. If this is true, Paul's words in Romans, then there is no further mystery concerning God himself which can be revealed by Paul's gospel or epistles because Yahweh had shown to man that which is to be known of him. Therefore, the phrase mystery of God cannot be a mystery about God himself, but rather it must be a mystery which God outlined through the writings of his prophets, which is being declared. As Paul said, 
in Romans chapter 16. Now, with ability, you are able to stand fast in accordance with my good message. And the proclamation of Yahshua Christ in accordance with a revelation of mystery having been kept secret in times eternal but being made manifest now through the prophetic writings in accordance with the command of the eternal Yahweh for the submission of faith to all the nations in discovering that Yahweh alone is wise. Through Yahshua Christ, the discovery is made through Christ, not Yahweh's wisdom, to whom is honor for the ages. While some topics in Romans are further developed than what we have here in 1 Corinthians, the two certainly complementing each other, that's because Paul's relationship with the Corinthians was much further developed than it was with the Romans, whom he had not even met. He had spent considerable time with the Corinthians and had also written earlier epistles to them. So the mystery of Yahweh is something revealed in the prophetic writings, and its purpose is for the submission of faith to all of the nations, as Paul says in Romans. Paul said some very similar things to the Colossians in the first chapter of his epistle to them. In that epistle, he mentioned as the Christian New Testament translates it, he mentioned the complacence with which they should walk in Christ. Verse 10 of Colossians chapter 1. Complacence is a willingness to be agreeable. Paul then told them that God has rescued us, meaning himself, his party, and the Corinthians, I'm sorry, and the Colossians, rescued us from the authority of darkness and instead gave us into the kingdom while also telling them that in Christ we have redemption, the dismissal of errors or sins. Then Paul said in verses 21 and 22 of Colossians 1, and you at one time being alienated and odious, hateful to God, in thought by wicked deeds because of their sin. Yet now he has reconciled to present you holy and blameless and void of offense before him. With all of this, it is manifest that the Colossians must have been of the children of Israel, who were put off from Yahweh for their disobedience. At the end of that very same chapter, Colossians 1, from verse 25, Paul said, I have become a servant in accordance with the administration of the household. That's the literal meaning of the word oikonomia. The administration of the household of Yahweh, which is given to me for you. 
to fulfill the word of the word of Yahweh. The mystery which has been concealed from the ages, to whom Yahweh did wish to make known what the riches of the honor of this mystery are among the nations, which is the honor of the mystery is the expectation of honor anointed in you. I know the King James has Christ in you. Ostensibly, the mystery of Yahweh is the expectation of honor anointed in the Colossians who were being taken out of darkness and having been at one time alienated from God, were being reconciled to him in Christ. Their sins were being forgiven, and they were being established once again as members of the household of God, the sonship. The mystery of Yahweh is therefore what he did to the children of Israel. That's what the mystery of God is. What he did to the children of Israel. How he put them off in ancient times from his communion. How they were scattered into many nations. And how he reconciled them to himself in Christ, forgiving their sins. Christ had said in John chapter 10, that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. However, 700 years before the coming of Christ, he had said through the prophet Ezekiel that my sheep, Ezekiel chapter 34, my sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Ezekiel's writing after 620 B.C. Yeah, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth and none did search or seek after them. Ezekiel writing around 620 B.C., or perhaps as late as the fall of Jerusalem, depending on when this particular passage was written, is speaking of the scattering of the sheep in the past tense. It's already a done deal. Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh, as I live, saith Yahweh God, Surely because my flock became a prey, and my flock became meat to every beast of the field. The Assyrians had already taken away most of Judah and practically all of Israel. 
because there was no shepherd. Neither did my shepherd search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. Therefore, O ye shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, even I will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. The shepherds of ancient Israel failed to keep the sheep. So Yahweh himself became their shepherd in order to ultimately demonstrate to man that only their God can be their king and that he will indeed keep the sheep. This is more striking when we find that in um, ancient Mesopotamian inscriptions, all the way back to ancient Sumer, it's a pretty popular analogy to make of the um, king as the shepherd of the people. Yahweh is telling us through Ezekiel that he came as Christ to search out his sheep because the anciently appointed shepherds failed to keep them secure. It is to those sheep that Paul had brought the gospel of Christ. They were scattered in the cloudy and dark day. When the children of Israel had gone into captivity, many of them were actually scattered over the centuries before the captivity and had been breaking off to settle elsewhere from the days preceding the Exodus. And yes, that can be documented. The nations to which Paul brought the gospel were all descended from the ancient lost sheep of Israel. And they were therefore being reconciled to God and forgiven of their sins. Those words have no relationship to any other people. Paul said himself, where, is, where there is no law, there is no sin. Sin is not accounted. Why would it have to be forgiven? Of course it wouldn't have to be forgiven. It's not accounted. Later, Christ himself quotes Isaiah chapter 42, where he explains that the purpose of the gospel is to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and then that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Paul explains to the Colossians that in Christ, they were delivered from the authority of darkness. Then, through Isaiah, in that same chapter, Yahweh says, 
And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight, which is actually another prophecy we see of the coming of Christ later on, that he will do that. These things will I do unto them, and not forsake them. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant, seeing many things, but thou observest not? Opening the ears, but he heareth not. Yahweh is well pleased. For his righteousness' sake, he will magnify the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey, and none delivers. For a spoil, and none says restore. The prisoners were the Israelites in their dispersions, which culminated in the captivities at the hands of the Assyrians and Babylonians. It is they who were to be restored to God in Christ. Isaiah was writing about Israel's captivity. None saith restore. Therefore, Yahweh himself would be their savior and restore them. In Isaiah chapter 43, Yahweh proclaimed, Bring forth the blind that have eyes, and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled, and among them, who can declare this and show us the former things? These words are important. Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say it is true. Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, speaking to Jacob, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, I have showed, when there was no strange God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am God. Yeah, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. The words of Christ in the Gospel, John 10. I will work, and who shall let it? Thus saith Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake have I sent to Babylon, and have brought down all their nobles, and the Chaldeans, whose cry is in the ships, a prophecy with a dual fulfillment, 
as seen in Revelation chapter 18. I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. Therefore, all the nations of Israel are all the nations of Isaiah 43.9. Thus saith Yahweh, which maketh a way in the sea, and a path in the mighty waters, which brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as tow. No weapon formed against thee shall prosper. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, now, 700 B.C., when Isaiah was writing. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers, in the desert, the children of Israel in the wilderness are depicted as those receiving mercy in Jeremiah chapter 30 and as those being nourished with the gospel with the messengers of Christ in Revelation chapter 12 as well as here in Isaiah. The new saint In Isaiah 43, is the mystery of Yahweh. The new thing is what Yahweh did to the children of Israel. And this is the mystery which Paul already declared and revealed. That the children of Israel were led off to the wilderness and became many nations in their captivity. And as those nations were being converted to Christ, they were fulfilling the proof of the anointed, as Paul had explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 3, and in weakness and in fear, and with much trembling I come before you, and my speech and my proclamation were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in exhibition, or, or the Codex Claro Montanus has revelation but an exhibition of spirit and of power, in order that your faith be not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of Yahweh. Some manuscripts have their persuasive words of man's wisdom, human wisdom, if I can use the term human. I'll discuss that term soon. Of which other variations are found in groups of later manuscripts. Other variations exist among the other texts. Regardless of the popular perception, Luke was not with Paul regularly during these middle years of his ministry, 
Luke was left behind in Philippi at the house of Lydia as Paul departed for Thessalonica with Silas in his company. As the book of Acts attests in the last verses of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17, Luke does not appear again in his narrative of Acts until Paul goes to the Troad in Acts chapter 20, about a year after this epistle was written. Therefore, although Acts chapters 17 through 19 describe a period which spanned over six years, those chapters are very concise, very abbreviated, I should say, the manner in which they are written, and actually contain very little of what had evidently happened as Paul conducted his ministry during that time. Luke did record things such as Paul's speech at Athens, but he only gave us a brief description of an extended stay in Corinth, and then a much longer sojourn in Ephesus, where we really don't have a whole lot outside of the... Um, trouble with the silversmiths. In Corinth, we don't have much besides the trouble with the Judeans who brought Paul before Gallio. Luke mentions Paul's final trip to Antioch and his travel back through Galatia to Ephesus once again. He mentions his several times passing through Macedonia in those chapters, but most of the details of these journeys are wanting in Acts. And we only have lengthier accounts of a few sparse events. Some of the details of what happened during this period are described in certain places in Paul's letters. For instance, some of the events of Paul's chapter, Acts chapter 18 visit to Antioch are recorded in his epistle to the Galatians. But these reports that Paul speaks of here, of the spirit and power, unfortunately, we do not have a record of them. And that is notable. That's something for Christians to consider. While reports of any exhibitions of the spirit are wanting in the account of Paul's stay in Corinth, which is recorded in Acts, we are informed that this is where he first met Priscilla and Aquila. Then we are informed, while Paul stayed in Corinth, of the conversion of Crispus and the conversion of Titius Eustace. Now, Titius Eustace is only called Justice in the King James Version, but he is almost certainly the Titus of the epistle, which bears that name. Before leaving Corinth, Paul also evidently converted Sosthenes, who was with him when this epistle, 1 Corinthians, is written. All of these people are mentioned in Luke's account of Paul's first sojourn in Corinth. Both Crispus and Sosthenes were at different times the assembly hall leaders of the Judeans in Corinth. And therefore, Paul's sojourn in Corinth must have been filled with notable events since he was able to bring such notable men to Christ. But we don't have any record of those events, except the, the, the trial, the abbreviated trial before Gallio. 
There are a couple of accounts in Acts of supernatural events at the hands of the apostles. And they are portrayed as a product of the Spirit of God bestowed upon the faithful from the time of the first Christian Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Yet what is remarkable, and this should be considered by Christians and by non-Christians, by white Israelite non-Christians, what is remarkable is that the book of Acts and Paul's epistles move along in their narrative without boasting about the miracles or even focusing upon them. The miracles are never put into the spotlight. The miracles are only mentioned in a few episodes in Acts, as the occasional healing or as the earthquake which opened the prison doors. Yet they remain in the background. while the gospel account is always in the foreground. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul mentioned the exhibition of the Spirit and power, he is actually quite modest and discreet, and made the reference only as part of his profession that the Corinthians were not persuaded to Christ by his own rhetorical skills. Paul admits that his own bodily presence is humble and weak. This is important to perceive because from these experiences which about which Paul writes, there came 250 years of men and women who were willing to die at the hands of the pagans and the Jews for the faith in Christ. Now this faith came only in part from the ministry of Paul in the way in which he describes it here. Because there were also other apostles of the faith whose works have not come down to us in writing, but who must have also had a hand in its dissemination. The proof of this is in Paul's own words. For instance, in his epistle to the Romans, that there were already steadfast Christians in places where Paul had not yet taught. But with those other apostles as well, the transmission of the faith and the spirit and power, which Paul described here, must have left such strong impressions of the truth of the gospel of Christ that men and women were willing to defend the gospel unto death. And indeed, many of them did. I don't think that the neo-pagans are going to defend Thor to the death. The ancient pagans didn't defend their gods to the death. They fought for food, land, 
their women, their, their own asses, but they did not fight and die for philosophical or religious principles like Christians did. Verse 6. Now we speak wisdom among the accomplished, but wisdom not of this age, nor of those governing this age, who are being done away with. The word rendered as accomplished in this passage is an adjective. It's telias. Telias may mean finished, completed, or perfected, among other things. Strong's number 5046. Although Christ used a word which literally means restored in Luke 640, the King James Version has him saying, the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect, it should be everyone that is restored, shall be as his master. The Apostle John, using a word that means perfected, the Apostle John said in his first epistle, But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know that we are in him. In 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 4 he said, No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us, and his love is perfected in us. It is in the sense of 1 John's use of the word that the Christianian New Testament translate the word, translated the word as accomplished here. That the accomplished Israelite is one who has accepted the gospel and who thereby loves his God and his brethren being perfected in Christ. In his epistle to the Hebrews, Paul used the verbal form of the same word where he said of Christ, for by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. All Israel is saved. The children of Israel are those who are sanctified in Christ, and therefore only the children of Israel are perfected or can be among the accomplished in Christ. From Ezekiel chapter 37, and the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. The children of Israel are sanctified in Christ, and those governing this age are being done away with. In John chapter 16, Christ made a statement, and while we will not elaborate upon his entire discourse, he said, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. In John 14.30, Christ said, The prince of this world cometh and has nothing in me. Evidently, the meaning is that he has no part or share with him. In the response to a voice from heaven recorded in John chapter 12, we read, Joshua replied and said, Not on account of me has this voice come, but on account of you. Now, judgment is of this society. Now, 
the ruler of this society shall be cast out. And if I am lifted up from this earth, I shall draw all to myself. These words are profound because it can be demonstrated in history and archaeology that they were indeed written down before the end of the first century in John's Gospel. With the lifting up or crucifixion of Christ and the spread of the Gospel, a process was begun, a process which took nearly a thousand years by which the entire white Adamic world had indeed been drawn to him in fulfillment of his statement in John. Imagine that. The ruler or prince of this society is manifest in Luke. Chapter 4. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, or to whosoever I desire, I will give it. If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship Yahweh thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Satan was crushed under the feet of the Romans in 70 AD. According to Paul, Romans 16:20. Christ spoke of the prince of this world in the singular number. Paul mentions the princes of this world, or here, as the Christogenian New Testament reads it, the governors of this age, in verse 8. In the plural, the seemingly contrasting terms are better understood when it is realized that Christ used the term collectively to describe the rulers who were opposed to him. Paul also use similar epithets collectively, for example, in Romans 16.20 and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as it is apparent in the gospel, as it was in the first century, and as it is today. Quite often those sitting in the seats of public authority are not always the true rulers. So we have it in Luke chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 13, in the prophecy of world powers, we read, They worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? We see the beast represents empirical world governments, and the dragon gives its power to the beast. The dragon creates the beasts, props them up as world rulers, and stays in the shadows, in the background. Once Europe abandoned paganism, and Christian governance and cultural institutions had developed, 
The devil was ostracized from society for a thousand years. The devil was cast out, as Christ had said. Of course, Christ also said in the Revelation later on that after the thousand years, the devil would come out of the pit. Now, Satan is let out of the pit and has deceived the nations once again. But when Babylon falls, Christians have a promise that those governing this age will indeed be done away with. They cannot be converted to Christ, as Paul said in chapter 1 of this epistle. It is folly to preach the gospel to those who are going to die. They have no part with Christ. The prince of the world, this world has nothing to do with Christ. And therefore, they have no promise of life in him. Verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Chapter 2, I'm sorry. Rather, we speak wisdom of Yahweh that had been hidden in a mystery which Yahweh had predetermined before the ages for our honor, which not one of the governors of this age has known, since if they had known, they would not have crucified the authority of that honor. The 3rd century papyrus P46 has the authority of their honor. The phrase authority, the authority here, where the principal word has been capitalized as an epithet is from kurios, with the definite article, which is a substantive, it's a noun. It's a noun used to, dis to identify a particular entity. Usually it's lord in the King James Version, or prince here. Aside from authority, the authority, the words author or master would also have been appropriate. The author of that honor. Christ was crucified. Christ is the author of the honor of the children of Israel, which was foretold, which Yahweh predetermined before the ages. If Yahweh predetermined it, if Christ was the author of it, if Christ is the author of salvation, then Christ must be Yahweh himself. As he says in Isaiah 43, 11, I, even I, am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. Paul told the Corinthians at the beginning of this chapter that he has been declaring the mystery of God to them. He was not declaring that God is a mystery. but was rather explaining the mystery that God had purposed in the prophets. Here he says that the things which he was teaching had been, past tense once again, had been hidden in a mystery. I've often said that the prophecy is not so that we can read it and see the future. We cannot. The prophets including the Revelation, the, the Psalms, and all the prophets in Scripture. The prophets exist so that we could read them, study 
history, know our history, read the prophecies, and see that God is true. Paul said that the things he was teaching had been hidden in a mystery. Paul's language insists that with the gospel and his teaching, these things are no longer a mystery because he is explaining them. Where Paul refers to the mystery determined before the ages for our honor, he must be referring to things foretold in the prophetic writings. And he had explained to the Romans that the revelation of this mystery was made manifest in those very writings in Romans chapter 16. When we search the prophetic writings, we find a promised honor of restoration to God for the children of Israel. A signal example is in Hosea, where it says of the cast-off Israelites that yet the number of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. The children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, so these can only be the original genetic Israelites, it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. Same people. Both sides of that equation have to belong to the same people and their children. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for they shall, great shall be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel means God sows seed, as in seed. Paul taught the fulfillment of this passage of Hosea in reference to the nations to which he brought the gospel in Romans chapter 9, verses 24 to 26. This is the same thing which Paul teaches the Corinthians in a different manner, which we shall see when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul tells them that our fathers were all under the cloud and all had passed through the sea. And then he goes on to explain that the pagan nations to whom he was bringing the gospel in Europe were Israel according to the flesh. They were real Israel. Those Jew bastards in Palestine were only pretenders. In Isaiah chapter 45, the word of God says, But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. 
you shall not be ashamed nor confounded. And then it says, Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations, which is a reference to the Israelites who survived the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities and resettlement in Persia and the cities of the Medes and the rest of Mesopotamia and its environs. And then it says in verse 21, Tell ye, and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. And this is important. Who has declared this from ancient times? Paul talks about this being planned by God from times eternal. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, Yahweh? And there is no God else besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. This is the mystery which Paul discusses here, which no others but the prophets of Yahweh had declared from ancient times. The conclusion of that chapter of Isaiah is that in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. This is one announcement of the honor which Paul mentions here and in similar statements in similar announcements that are found throughout all of the prophets. Paul explained it, but still the world to this day will not accept it. The wisdom of the world, therefore, is folly before God, and the wisdom of God is folly to the world, as Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In the end, Yahweh will save Israel and only Israel. As Paul said, Yahweh had predetermined these things before the ages for our honor, and he announced it in his prophets. Paul was teaching the fulfillment of that. But just as it is written, Things which eye did not see, and ear did not hear, and came not into the heart of man, those things Yahweh has prepared for them that love him. And of course, not anyone could just claim to love God. With the difference of one word, Paul seems to quote from Isaiah chapter 64, in the prophecy which relates to the same sin and ultimate salvation of the children of Israel. And I will quote in part, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither has the eye seen, O God, besides thee, what he has prepared for them that waited for him. Thou meetest him that rejoices and works righteousness. Those that remember thee in thy ways, behold, Thou art wroth, for we have sinned 
In those is continuance, and we shall be saved. The extant Septuagint version of Isaiah 64.4 is somewhat different. From of old we have not heard, neither have our eyes seen a God beside thee, and thy works which thou wilt perform to them that wait for mercy. Of course, only those who love Yahweh among the number of the children of Israel taken into captivity would be waiting for mercy as Isaiah had written those words. In either version of Isaiah, the, the Masoretic text or the Septuagint, the context of the words, which Paul quotes, limits their application to the children of Israel. For we have sinned. In those, those who wait upon Yahweh, there is continuance. Isaiah 64, 5. And we, those who sin, the children of Israel, shall be saved. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. Yet to us, Yahweh reveals them, speaking about those things which Yahweh prepared for them that love him, in verse 9. Yet to us, Yahweh reveals them through the Spirit. For the Spirit inquires of all things, even the depths of Yahweh. Many people tend to think that things revealed in the Spirit are things they could just simply pluck out of the air, are things which are simply what they themselves feel in their heart. They feel something in their heart and they say, oh, that must come from the Spirit. So yeah, niggers are going to make it into the kingdom of heaven because I feel like they will. That's not how it works. The word of Yahweh says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Don't be deceived by your feelings or your heart. To the contrary, there is a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 7 which will serve to help explain this statement of Paul's that Yahweh reveals these things to us through the Spirit. Zechariah 7, verse 8. And the word of Yahweh came unto Zechariah, saying, Thus speaketh Yahweh of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, nor the stranger, nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. But they refused to hearken. Now we could have a little prophetic background on this in Micah, in Amos, 
in Hosea, the children of Israel, and the ancient prophets who wrote up until the time of the Assyrian captivities were warning the children of Israel to judge fairly and to protect the widow, the fatherless, and the poor. But they refused to hear it. That's the message of Amos, Hosea, Micah, parts of Isaiah. So Zechariah is just a prophecy which follows naturally after what had happened in the three centuries before his time, when the children of Israel were indeed punished and sent off into captivity for these very things. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yeah, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law lest they should hear the law and the words which Yahweh of hosts have sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from Yahweh of hosts. Therefore it has come to pass that as he cried, and they would not hear, so they cried, and I would not hear, saith Yahweh of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, that no man passed through nor returned. Israel did not return to Palestine, according to Zechariah. For they laid the pleasant land desolate. Zechariah is, of course, referring back to the captivities of Israel and Judah when they were scattered among the nations. And Zechariah is telling us that they did not return. The things, the words which Yahweh of hosts have sent in his spirit by the former prophets, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, Micah, Joel, Etc. Where Zechariah says, lest they should hear the law and the words which Yahweh of hosts has sent in his spirit by the former prophets, we may see what Paul meant by referring to the revelation through the spirit here in verse 10. The words of the prophets are the will of Yahweh expressed through his spirit so that his will could be transmitted to us in those words. There's nothing spiritual from God which can contradict those words. Therefore, Paul told the Romans, verse 15, Chapter 15, verse 4. Now whatever things have been written before have been written for our instruction so that through patient endurance and the calling of the writings we may have expectation. Where does the calling come from? Does the Christian expectation come from? Where does the will of the Spirit of God, where did the spiritual... They come from the prophetic writings. You don't pluck them out of thin air. 
Then Paul explained to them in Romans 16 that the revelation of the mystery, the mystery of God, which he's talking about, having been kept secret in times eternal, but being made manifest now, as he was speaking through the prophetic writings, was in accordance with the command of the eternal God. In Romans chapter 7, where Paul said that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, he was comparing the essence of the commandments in the written law to the fleshly desires of man. That essence in the written law, that is spiritual, as are the words of the prophets. Both the written law and the writings of the prophets are the expression of the Spirit of God, as Paul in Romans chapter 7 attests, and as Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 7 attests. Where Paul tells us here that the things which Yahweh has in store for those that love him are revealed through the Spirit, that revelation is in the books of the prophets. And studying the words of the prophets, our individual spirits can accept the will of God if if we indeed have his spirit and love our God. Verse 11. Indeed of men, who knows the things of mankind or the things of the man, but the expression seems to be a substantive Except the spirit of man, which is within him. Only the spirit within a man knows what truly lies in his own heart. Here Paul seems to distinguish between the conscience of a man and the desires of his own heart. Although this is a digression from Paul's topic, aside from the man himself, God certainly knows what is in man. And therefore, God, and only God, can rightfully judge man. From Ezekiel chapter 11, from verse 5, And the Spirit of Yahweh fell upon me, and said unto me, Speak, thus saith Yahweh, Thus have you said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind, Every one of them. Only God knows the truth concerning what lies in the hearts of men. That is why only God can rightfully judge man. Because God is true, and every man is a liar. As Paul explained in Romans chapter 4. Ostensibly because only God knows and can consider everything in judgment. Men can only judge out of partiality. The apostles marveled that God incarnate, Yahshua Christ, knew what was in men 
as it is expressed in John chapter 2. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of any man, for he knew what was in man. Paul continues, that's the end of our digression, Paul continues, even so, no one knows the things of Yahweh except the spirit of Yahweh. Yet, as Paul, I'm sorry, as both Paul and the prophets attest, the will of the spirit of Yahweh is revealed to men in the prophetic writings which includes all of the Old Testament scriptures. That revelation, however, is evidently only a partial revelation of Yahweh's will. Even Christ attested that he revealed things in the gospel that had been kept secret from the foundation of the world, Matthew 13:35. Only Yahweh himself knows what he has reserved. And since... Nothing searches out the spirit of Yahweh. Man cannot search out what Yahweh has not revealed. But the things which Yahweh reveals through his spirit, exemplified in the law and the prophets, and now in the gospel and the revelation, man can indeed know if man has that same spirit Therefore Christ was recorded in John chapter 14 as having said, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither does it know him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. The children of God can indeed receive the truth of God from the word of God. However, those who do not have the spirit of Yahweh in them have no truth in them and can only corrupt his word. Bastards cannot tell you the truth. Paul had said in Romans chapter 8, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of Yahweh dwells in you, and if one has not the spirit of Christ, he is not of him. John explains that in his first epistle, and Paul explains it in a different way here. He goes on to verse 12. We will proceed to verse 12, where Paul goes on and says, Now we do not receive the spirit of the society or the spirit of the world, but that spirit from Yahweh, in which case we should know the things granted to us by Yahweh, which also we speak of, not instructed in words of human wisdom, but instructed in of the spirit by the spirit by the spiritual compounding with the spiritual. The word compounding here is from a Greek verb sugkrino, which may also mean to compare, to measure, to estimate, 
Literally, it means to judge one together with another, to judge one thing alongside another thing. If we are born of God, our spirits can hear his word and agree with his will. The things granted to us, which Paul mentioned, are those things which Yahweh had expressed for his children in the law and the prophets. As Paul said in Romans chapter 8, that indeed, as many as are led by the Spirit of Yahweh, these are the sons of Yahweh. Therefore, you have not taken on a spirit of bondage anew to fear, but you have taken on a spirit of the position of sons, in which we cry, Father, Father. That same spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of Yahweh, and the children then heirs, heirs indeed of Yahweh and joint heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer together, that also we will be honored together. But not every person is of Yahweh, and not all people have that same spirit. Here Paul contrasts the spirit of God with the spirit of the society or of the world, and perhaps this can be more fully explained by understanding the Apostle John's comments relating to this same thing, which are in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, where he says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby, know ye the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. They haven't overcome any philosophical idea or inanimate object. They've overcome them, the Antichrist. We overcome the world with Christ. His enemies are in the world. His children overcome those enemies in Christ. We have overcome them. In the first century, the gospel was supposed to be the division between the wheat and the tares. And by the gospel, the children of God overcame the bastard Jew devils that denied that he was God, that denied that he was indeed the Messiah. Today, Christians kiss their asses. Back then, they overcame Jews in Christ because Jews are of the devil. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. Earlier in that same epistle, John had spoken of the same antichrists were in 1 John 
he wrote, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. They didn't have the same origin that the Christian Judeans had. There are men whose origin is with God, and having the Spirit of God, they have the ability to agree with and follow the Word of God. Then there are people whose origin is in the society, and they themselves are the result of the sins of the society. They are bastards. And they will never be found to be in agreement with God. This is why Paul gives two options in his admonition to the Hebrews. If you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Hebrews 12.8. We see John say that they came out from us, but they were not of us. Peter and Jude both speak of those same infiltrators, those same Christ deniers, in a quite different way, explaining that they were from outside and crept in unawares into the body of God's people. In 2 Peter chapter 2, they are called natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, while Jude says that they are twice dead, plucked up by the roots, and that they do not have the Spirit of God. Jude explicitly said that they do not have the Spirit, neither can they obtain it, because to have it, one must be born from above, being a child of Adam, the Son of God. John chapter 3, Luke chapter 3. Paul says, Now the natural man does not accept that of the Spirit of Yahweh, those without the Spirit can't accept the things of the Spirit, for it is folly to him, and he is not able to know because it is inquired of spiritually. But the spiritual inquires into all things, and by it no one is examined. The Sukakos Anthropos is the natural man. Although the word sukakos is an adjective from the noun suke, Strong's number 5590, which means breath, Latin anima, that which animates the body, the life, the spirit, the soul. Often in secular writing, suke is used instead of pneuma to mean spirit. When I say secular writings, of course, I mean non-Christian ancient Greek writings, secular meaning worldly. Suke is often used instead of pneuma to mean spirit, but at times it is also distinguished from pneuma. The explanation lies in Joseph Thayer's definition of suke in his Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, where Joseph Thayer says that the Greeks had a threefold rather than a twofold 
explanation of the nature of man. Here and elsewhere, psuchikos is used by Paul in contrast to pneumaticos, or spiritual, and therefore, psuchikos is understood in Paul's writing to refer to the natural. Psuchikos anthropos, the natural man, the man of the flesh. The word pneuma, from which we get pneumaticos, or the spiritual man in Paul's writing. The word pneuma is always the word used in the New Testament scriptures to refer to the Spirit, and especially to the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God. That's a parallelism. They're both the same. Now, verse 14 where Paul says that the natural man does not accept that of the Spirit of Yahweh, for it is folly to him, and he is not able to know because it is inquired of spiritually. That verse has a multifaceted interpretation, where Paul says that the natural man does not accept that of the Spirit of God. First, the men who are born of the world, as John explains, who do not have the Spirit, as Jude tells us, and as we see Peter agree. Those men could never accept the things of the Spirit of God. They cannot be anything but natural men, fleshly men. They can never accept the truth of God because they do not have his Spirit. But the Adamic man is special, the purely Adamic man, because he has two natures, the spiritual and the fleshly, because he has the flesh and he has the Spirit of God. And therefore, the Adamic man can make a conscious decision to choose to follow one or the other. Paul wrote about this very thing in Romans chapter 8 where he said, in part, Now then, there is no condemnation to those among the number of Christ Yahshua. Indeed, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Yahshua has liberated you from the law of guilt and death. The law is powerless in that it has been weak over the flesh. Yahweh sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and amidst sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the judgment of the law should be fulfilled among us who walk not in accordance with the flesh, but in accordance with the spirit. For they who are in accordance with the flesh strive after the things of the flesh, and they who are in accordance with the spirit the things of the Spirit. Indeed, the purpose of the flesh is death, but the Spirit, the purpose of the Spirit, life and peace. Because the purpose of the flesh is hostile to Yahweh. Then to the law of Yahweh, it is not obedient, neither is it able to be. And they that are in the flesh are not able to satisfy Yahweh. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of Yahweh dwells in you, if you're not an Adamic man, you can't live after the Spirit. You're just kidding yourself. And if one has not the Spirit of Christ, he is not of him. But if Christ is in you, indeed the body is dead because of sin, 
but the spirit alive because of righteousness. Paul is teaching, as Christ himself said in John 14, 23, if a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. When the Adamic man complies with his God, his God cohabits with him. However, those who do not have the Spirit of God have no opportunity for that, whose origin is of the world. Those governing this age, for example, are being done away with. They have no choice. Those with the Spirit of God have a calling to depart from the world and live in accordance with that Spirit. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of Yahweh? Who will instruct him? But we have the perception of Christ. That word, sumbibazo, instruct. There's a, lengthier There's a lengthier explanation of the use of this word here by Paul. In the notes to this program, I'm going to attempt to abbreviate it. The secular Greeks never used that word to mean instruct. It has many other uses. A secondary metaphorical usage is to teach or instruct. Paul clearly used it in the sense of instruct here, as it's a quote from Scripture. In the Septuagint, the, the word appears ten times, and it's always with the meaning of to teach or to instruct. And that, even though Paul used sumbibazo several times in other senses, here he uses it in the sense of to instruct, which the secular Greeks did not. And that is one way, and there are many others, but that is one way to tell and to demonstrate clearly that the Septuagint Greek did have an influence on Paul's vocabulary and his grammar. Here in the first part of this verse, Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. Although Jeremiah 23:18 is also quite similar. In Jeremiah, we see Yahweh's wrath against those who walk after the thoughts of their own hearts, an idea which is related to these very passages in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you, meaning the false prophets of Jeremiah's time. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of Yahweh. They, stay, they say still unto them to despise me. Yahweh has said you shall have peace. And they say unto everyone that walks after the imagination of his own heart, no evil shall come upon you. For who has stood in the counsel of Yahweh and has perceived and heard his word? 
Who has marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of Yahweh has gone forth in fury, even a grievous whirlwind. It shall fall grievously upon the head of the wicked. And that reference is to the wicked of God's children who walk after the imaginations of their own hearts. They walk after the flesh. Paul is calling Israel back into the obedience of their God to walk after the Spirit. The Spirit found in the law and the prophets in the prophetic writings. However, Isaiah chapter 40 is a prophecy of comfort to those in Israel who love Yahweh, where all the other nations are considered to be nothing before God. We shall not read that much of the chapter here, but only the immediate passages. From verse 11, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and measured out heaven with the span? and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the spirit of Yahweh, or being his counselor, has taught him? Exactly what Paul quotes here. With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? Both passages, Paul can be paraphrasing either passage, and they are both relevant to the conversation which Paul is having in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. As for Paul's closing statement, but we have the perception of Christ. The word for perception is newest. And it may have been literally written as mind. And the word for Christ may have been written as the anointed. We have the mind of the anointed. I wouldn't go so far as to say that. Paul is distinguishing what is fleshly from what is of the Spirit of God. And the perception of Christ is very well made manifest through the gospel of Christ. And that is the Christian advantage, since Christ had indeed opened his mouth in parables and uttered things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. We need the gospel of Christ to understand godliness and iniquity, and he gives us the keys by which to truly understand both the law and the prophets, which is from where we get things that are spiritual and where the mystery of God is manifest to us, that mystery being what he did with the children of Israel. Tomorrow night, Martin Luther. Next Friday, 1 Corinthians part 4, Man's Eternal Spirit. This Sunday afternoon, Christagenia Europe with Sven Shanks. Please watch the um, front page of Christagenia 
Probably after tomorrow's program, for the posted time, I apologize for not finding out any sooner. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.